Welcome to season three of the Beyond Capital podcast. People always ask me, what is the secret sauce to marrying profit with purpose? We're back for another season to bring you the stories of successful leaders that are building and scaling purpose-driven businesses. I'm Eva Yazari, general partner of Beyond Capital Ventures. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Scoot. Together, Eva and I have built and invested in businesses worth millions. We want to show you how conscious leadership translates impact in all facets of a business and how it can show up in a company's operations, product, and culture, sometimes unexpectedly. Whether you're a leader of a company, team, household, or just yourself, we hope you walk away knowing the possibilities of impact for you and feeling inspired to take action every day. This is the Beyond Capital Podcast. And today's guest is Eva and Ed. Isn't that amazing? It's us again. Well, we're closing. We're yeah, we're closing out season three, and we're going to take a look at highlights and mega trends. All the fun stuff. Yep. I feel like we've had an incredible last season, but before we dive into talking about some of our favorite moments and how. Frankly, all of our episodes aligned with global megatrends. Ed, tell me, you know, we started in, in recording in January. What's been happening for you? We're now in June. It's six months later. I can only imagine that it's been so much. Well, the first thing is I'm training for my, for my uh, college rugby reunion in France for the World Cup. So that is, at age, won't say, quite the feat I'm hoping I don't have to play longer than maybe five or 10 minutes in the reunion game. But besides that, on the work front, been doing a lot of work with Scoot. We've just kind of put the rebrand behind us, which is big undertaking, and finally kind of closing out all the small tasks there and launching a ton of new capabilities around um, kind of what we call smart badging, where when you go into the Scoot room, you can uh, see a lot of detail about others in the room and a lot of conditional logic and really cool ways to share information inside of a, a virtual meeting. And then um, also room entry flows, how you go into the room, where you can place people and mix and match them in all kinds of new ways. And then a ton of new analytics capabilities around that. So at Scoot, we've been super busy, tripled the size of our engineering team and product teams and have just really been investing in the future of virtual meetings. That's been keeping me busy besides trying to get in shape for this rugby thing. I can't wait to use the new version. I know. It's actually awesome. And a lot of the other That's gaps, great. you know, that our customers have told us about, we've we've improved. New and improved. And when you're training for a rugby reunion at the Rugby World Cup, does that mean you're playing? Not in the Rugby World Cup, but our our team, my collegiate team at Stanford we had a coach who was French, Franck Boisvert, great guy. And everybody loved Franck. So um, we haven't seen him in many, many years. And since the Rugby World Cup is in France this year, this fall, we assumed he would be in town. So me and a couple guys organized a reunion at his hometown of Perpignan, which is in uh, southern France, kind of close to Spain. And we're going to have a three-day reunion there and a game Bunch of, wow. bunch of old guys. Um, and we're going to see how many of them walk off the field versus being carried off the field. Incredible. You also told me that you're doing a cheese tour, which sounds 
just about right. I'm at snack time here in London. So <laughs> I, uh, my mouth is almost watering as I say that. Fromage. Fromage. Yeah. Exactly. Fromage tour. Tour de fromage. Great updates. Thank you. How about you? Yeah, on my end... Wow, it's been an incredible week. We closed an investment on Monday at Beyond Capital Ventures, where we invested in an e-bike and battery swapping business in East Africa. Oh, cool. So a company called Ampersand, which formerly, actually currently manufactures e-bikes, but is moving much more into the battery swapping and battery swapping station expansion of their model. That's something we found really compelling about the business. We also hosted a five-hour founder summer school, which you were a speaker at. And I'm grateful that you could be a resource for our, our founders and their management teams. But we had conversations on everything from, you know, kind of leading even with your heart all the way through what it looks like to grow your company in three different phases and growing your team and where the gaps can be and even had a a legal expert kind of walk through what the pitfalls typically are when growing your business and hitting that growth stage from a legal perspective. So that was a lot of fun and a great interaction as always with our portfolio companies. I'm also thinking about fund three and I'm thinking about how fund three can be innovative and demand led rather than just another version of our fund. So it might be something a little bit different that tweaks what we can offer in the market so we can be more competitive, but also provide capital where there isn't. And then finally, I've been thinking a lot about climate integration into our strategy. So Ampersand definitely led off that conversation amongst our team. They do have an impact on livelihoods as they help gig economy workers, reduce time with battery swapping, reduce cost with the e-bike model um, because it is less expensive than filling up your your car with gas, excuse me, your motorbike with gasoline. But how can we measure climate integration across a lot more of our companies and some of them which were on this podcast, like Sangu Dele of CarePoint, who is doing a research study around health outcomes and climate in Africa. So how can we capture some of the climate impact that we might not be measuring right now. So those are the things on my plate. What part of climate change, climate strategy for a fund do you think is more important? Helping people adapt to the inevitable climate change or trying to prevent it? I think it's a little bit of both. I'm sorry to give that answer. You know, if if you were to poke me, I probably would say the former, helping adapt to climate change, which means, and, and I think that that is the work that is not yet being done at the scale that it needs to be because the disproportionate impact will be in developing countries. And so it's not where the resources are. And of course, in mean, the U.S., we have a lot of, go ahead. Do you mean disproportionate in the sense of human suffering or disproportionate in some other yes. way? Yes, human suffering. Like the global South will bear the brunt. And, and largely it's, it's uh, climate driven. It's, it's frankly just where the temperatures will rise the most and where potentially there isn't the right infrastructure for cooling, for you know, keeping people comfortable, you know, for mitigating issues around hurricanes and large weather storms. But 
I am hopeful that the work that's being done around carbon catch capture will really support this area of climate impact because carbon capture, you know, as we all as stated in the name, pulls carbon out of the air and I think can help immediate, more immediate impacts. But the second piece of, you know, stopping climate change, frankly, from getting worse, because I don't think we're going to stop it from, have a del- from having a deleterious impact on our lives, is also very important. And, and some of those mitigants can, can be deployed where I invest in India and East Africa and potentially make some of the human suffering a little bit less. I mean, one area is just pollution. You know, pollution is directly tied to health outcomes and pollution can, is, is, can be mitigated by adoption of eVTOLs, you know, adoption of vehicles that are electric. So there are, I think, ways that the two can actually, the two themes can work together. Yeah, I, I, I asked that question. I wasn't sure what I would have answered to it when I asked it. As Those are the best questions to ask, right? True. I think the you know bulk of the money will go towards mitigating the damage and then you know kind of as those costs continue to escalate then you know maybe carbon capture probably i think you're probably right mm. that's really the only way to at any large scale undo it and there's plenty of ways to, you know it's just kind of a it's just a cost to capture the carbon you know it's not it's not a question of whether it can be done it's already being done at scale it just costs a certain amount and you know they right. know where they can stick it they can stick it in the under you know underground or they can convert it and stuff so then there has to emerge some kind of carbon you know credit markets you know that are reasonable and that work reasonably well so because uh, otherwise then you know the carbon capture wouldn't keep up with the continued growth of of uh, emissions but um, yeah that's good okay you're busy i am but it's all fun things and it's all expansion which feels really good. And uh, I feel grateful because I also have a really great team to help execute on the investment side and thinking about fund three and also thinking about how we integrate more climate into our impact metrics. Yeah. I was thinking your team is really great, especially your new team members. I really enjoy working with them. Thank you. Hats off to them. So you were generously giving some of your time yesterday, two days ago around our, our founder summer school. And one of the topics that you brought up was the concept that every company can fall into a Jungian archetype. And we're talking about Carl Jung here and his concept of the archetypes that humans represent. Talk a little bit more about that. I I, I always thought it'd be a great topic to bring to our audience, Ed. Well, for every every listener who's listening to this podcast in order to um, put yourself to sleep, we could talk a lot about Jungian archetypes, but an easier way to think about it is like the the simplicity in understanding a Disney character when you start to watch a Disney movie. You watch Aladdin, and you know it's clear kind of who the bad genie is or who the who the Joker is. And there's always a a different type of character, and in a Disney movie, they're very simplified. And the reason why the creators of those movies simplify these characters is because they have to tell an entire story from you know, beginning to end within you know, less than 90 minutes. And they only have about five minutes to give you the whole, the whole scoop on kind of who's who and how this plot is going to shape up, set the, set the stage. So that's very instructive for businesses because when you're trying to stand out as a 
particular as a new company, your brand is fighting with so many other brands for attention. And a simple story, if your brand is as simple to understand as a Disney character, like within the first two seconds, you can tell that, you know, this is the bad witch or this is the good witch. And in, in your storytelling about your brand, you know, Jungian archetype just means that there are these 12 different types like jester, you know, lover, ruler, wizard, creator, hero, you know, those kinds of things. And when you align one of those to your brand and oversimplify your story, then customers can understand something about you in the first couple seconds. And uh, most entrepreneurs don't do this because they, they think that their businesses are complex and they can't be simplified into a single character type like a jester or a hero. But in reality, the customers don't see it that way. So the real trick for entrepreneurs is to take the complexity of your business and keep it that way for whatever you need to do to run it and grow it and make it profitable. But when you tell your story, make that story something your customers can understand what your character is, what your brand is within, say, two seconds or maybe four seconds and no more than that. So that's an exciting thing to really explore when you're looking at building a brand. And I was very pleased to have the opportunity to share that with your team and your and your founders. Yeah, and we mapped the competitors of most of our portfolio companies for them so that they could have a takeaway and you pointed out that in some industries, depending on the maturity of that industry, certain players are hovering around certain areas of a Jungian archetype wheel. So if you, if those that are listening would Google, it's very easy to find these kind of Jungian archetype wheels where you see all of the archetypes, but some of them relate, such as potentially, you know, every man, jester, lover, kind of fall in a similar category, caregiver, or caregiver, ruler, creation, or creator. And so you pointed out that some of the companies actually had like all their competitors around the, let's say the, you know, sage or the, even the explorer. What yeah. does that mean? And when, and, and when you see that, maybe when you're archetyping your company, do you think to go the opposite direction or do you think that there's a, a strategy, you know, should, should a founder think, you know, maybe I'll do the opposite or maybe I'll just do what they're doing better. That's the hardest question to answer because what <laughs> drives an entrepreneur in so many cases, you know, half of the entrepreneurs or more are these very authentic kind of creating this thing from who they are, from their heart, from their soul. And for them, it's very difficult to strip away the complexity of, of who they are as a person because, of course, no human being is as simple as a Disney character and neither is any founder and neither is any company. So they're hesitant or unable to do it. The marketing geniuses, on the other hand, the ones who are more chameleon-like, you know, they those founders you know, immediately understand that they need to differentiate and really focus on it. And a good example of this would be in the bottled water market. So there's lots of bottled water out there. There's Evian and Fiji and, you know, Dasani. Boss. Yeah, Aquafina, all those, right? But what's the biggest water, bottled water company that's emerged in the last year? You have a guess? Uh, Pathwater. 
but not in the last year. No, no. Liquid Death. <laughs> oh, yes. Right? So Liquid Death had a great idea, which is, you know, at, at music festivals and bars and other places where people just want to have some water, they don't want to be holding a dopey bottle of water, which Aquafina and Dasani would align to like the regular archetype. It's just water, you know, nothing special about it. Um, your other ones would have some other kind of brand essences to them. Um, you know, maybe Pathwater would be Lover or something like, a, we, you know, take care of the environment, be a steward for the environment. That's kind of a love, you know, caring kind of thing. But when you look at Liquid Death, it's going to go right up to Outlaw. And it's like you're drinking, it's a joke, but, you know, you're, the whole brand essence is, looks like a heavy metal energy drink. That is a marketing genius who did that and just basically said, I, I doubt the entrepreneur is somebody who wants to kill people with liquids. You know, I think that it's quite the opposite, but they make it so that when you're at a music festival and you're feeling a little bit rebellious and you're feeling a little bit like, yeah, rock and roll, I don't want a regular Aquafina in my hand. I want something that aligns to my current mood, my current experience and who I'm expressing myself to be at that moment. And so the marketing geniuses get this and, you know, and, 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 and the more authentic kind of entrepreneurs really struggle with it. Did you know their strap line at liquid death is don't be scared. It's just water. Murder your thirst, death to plastic. Yeah. And they use cans. And so they, so they take it and they turn it into uh, you know, they, they only do the recyclable aluminum, which is nice. Right. Um, yeah. You know, death to plastic, which is great. Um, but it's cool in that way, you know? And so, yes. so they built this brand out of nothing in a market that any sane person, if you, if you as a venture capitalist, somebody had come to you and said, Hey, I want to start a water bottle company, you know, water company in America. You'd be like, uh, what's the sustainable advantage going to be again? And in reality, the, the only thing that they did was pick an archetype that was different from everyone else. And there happened to be wow. a lot of people who really wanted to align to that when they're at a bar or when they're in a social situation at a party, at a music festival. It's pure genius. I can't agree more. Such a great example yeah. of how that plays out. Thank you, Ed. Yeah. I mean, if you're reading the news these days or you ask any uh, VC or investor, and I actually just was in India 10 days ago in Bangalore meeting with investors, what you hear is a focus on megatrends mega. and megatrends, mega. Yeah. We're going from liquid death to megatrends. <laughs> <laughs> Cue the heavy so, metal music. Exactly. I know it's perfect. So these are trends that have an effect on a global scale and some of them are current global threats. Now, typically we see them to be in these lists, very data, climate, AI, ESG, and even inclusion. And what I noticed in thinking about the megatrends from meetings and, you know, thinking about them in my own portfolio at Beyond Capital Ventures is that season three fell squarely into climate, data, ESG, and inclusion. And if we were to include maybe AI as a, as a kind of category alongside data, we didn't have so much AI on the show or a conversation about that, but that's one we can certainly unpack a little bit later in this episode. So just to share a couple examples, and then Ed, I'd love to know maybe one or two of these episodes that really stood out to you 
We had Plant Switch, Dylan Baxter, Plant Switch, Fall into the Climate, Megatrend. We had Nora May Kadena from Supply Change Capital, also in the climate and arguably in the ESG category. We had Jacqueline Kung from Activated Insights talking about data for the senior care community and how she builds businesses around data. We had Sangudele, who's building the largest database of Black health outcomes on the planet through his acquisition of hospitals and clinics in Africa. And then on the ESG side, we had Hitha Palapu, who from Roe Pharmaceuticals was talking to us about kind of rethinking pharmaceuticals and rethinking the utility and the use of pharmaceuticals to make them better for the patient. We had Jesse Gabriel, who largely has geared her legal practice to female founders and female fund managers, although since then she started working with one of our past guests, Rumani Azari, who happens to be my husband. And then in inclusion, we had Zeno, the asset management firm in Africa that allows for investors with as little as $3 to invest. We had Yasmin Nori from Via Wellness. Um, focused on women's health. And we had Larry Perkins talking about how to transform a business from the human-centered kind of side of things. And so I just was really fascinated that somewhat intentionally through the lens of conscious leadership, but somewhat unintentionally, we covered almost all of the megatrends in season three. I know. Well, for me, And I don't even know, this might be controversial to say in the conscious capitalism circles, but, you know, for me, climate is number one. And and the reason for that is because it's so many hundreds of millions of people are, you know, will be dramatically affected by it or are being dramatically billions. Yeah, billions. So, so most of my work, not all of it, but most of my work is oriented towards climate stuff. You know, that, that would be, you know, Dylan Baxter and the kind of plant switch side of things, but also Christian Kemp Griffin at Cellucomp, you know, right. you know, that's, that's climate, but I guess you could throw environment in there. I'm also probably if I had a number two issue besides just like climate overall, it would be plastic. You know, I think that, right. I think plastic needs to go, it's not going to go away, but it needs to go away from many places and we need to get it out of single use and we need to get it out of our food supply. You know, and we had demand Q, which is doing a lot on the, you know, we talk about, we talk about pollution and you can stand up as many solar and wind powered plants as you want. But on a hot day when the wind isn't blowing, you don't have the wind power anymore and you need power plants and, and you know, those, those are going to be gas or, or nuclear or something, you know, they, they can't all be, magically producing power on a steady output basis without some kind of resource in there. And so in order to reduce the amount of power plants you, you build to you know reduce the peak amounts by connecting all these buildings with smart grids and stuff really can help reduce the pollution caused by power plants. So I think, I think all those were, I thought we had really great guests. We're on, I agree. We're I mean, on trend. It, yeah. And to hear Gary, who was, you know, in the, oil industry, if I remember correctly, or in the energy industry, the more traditional energy industry kind of pivot and 
know that it is possible to be more efficient and make building systems much more efficient, I thought was a really great episode. So I, I certainly agree with you on that thinking. There's a lot that will come out of these companies and it's kind of our, our introducing them to the audience audience is just the start. And we certainly encourage the audience to follow the businesses that we've had on the show as well. Life is unthinkable without electricity. For sure. You go to any of your you know markets where you're active in East Africa or India, like you know, bringing electricity and the benefits of electricity to that population is directly correlated with improvement in standard of living. You know, just being able to extend your day, being able to was it uh, frontier markets that had come out with a yeah. simple hand powered flashlight for yeah, you know, so like farmers. So where they go, farmers can go out in the middle of the night without getting bit by a snake or something, you know, like, that, yeah. you know, it's like power is, is absolutely essential. And so, you know, we talk about the energy industry, really, if you say like someone has spent their career in the energy industry, first pass in your brain on that is like, is this a, a bad person? You know what I mean? Like your first pass on that is, are they a polluter? Are they... And then your second pass on that is, wait, are they driving energy in the right direction or are they not? But if you kind of work in the energy, if you're like a big energy company, you know, you're looking at scale as well, which is like, hey, it takes a lot of power to power Texas or California or America. It's like you can't just, you know, wave a magic wand and give everybody the power that they need. So it's it's uh, it's it's incredible um, how all these things kind of interconnect. Absolutely. I want to segue to the other megatrend that we didn't have so much representation around on the show, which is Gen AI. And I know you running a tech company might be thinking about this on a daily basis. I'm certainly thinking about it on a weekly basis. Then we, you know, potentially can see it showing up amongst our portfolio companies or prospective ones. But what are you thinking about these days when it comes to AI? First of all, you know, AI is not a new technology that's magically arrived on the scene this year. You know, we've had spell checkers and grammarly finishing yeah. sentences and um, many, many kinds of um, helpful little tools that were using the same core technologies as generative AI. It's just that they were doing it on a micro scale, like just with one word or one sentence, instead of like, write me a whole essay or, you know, write me a whole picture. You know, when, when you use the visual effects on Instagram and say like, make it look, you know, yellow or make it look like dusk or, you know, that's the same kind of technology that's being put to play with, with some of the generative AI models. What's interesting though, is just the scale of them. And that's what creates these larger outputs, like full pictures or full videos or full essays or full articles or computer code. What they're really doing is they're just taking a massive amount of data that they've stored up in some database and doing pattern recognition. And they do that pattern recognition in a really sophisticated way that you know mimics the output of a human brain. And so um, that pattern recognition using data from the past is problematic in two ways. Aside from the you know huge benefits that it can produce, like write me a write me a blog post or you know, create this headshot of me holding a you know a basket of daisies, whatever. The use of massive amounts of data from the past create two si- significant problems. The first one 
is that the past isn't necessarily what we want the future to be, especially with respect to like discrimination or stereotypes or biases that existed. So if I'm training my model, and Bloomberg just came out with a really interesting study on this, you know, where you type into stable diffusion, they did a study with like 1500 or 3000 images where they where they type in something like, you know, show me a picture of a, an inmate or show me a picture of a housekeeper or show me a picture of an architect. And when you have it do that many times, and then you look at the aggregate of those pictures, it's clear that these generative AI models are using, you know, data from the past where maybe, yeah, the the population of housekeepers does look a certain way, but that's not the way we want housekeepers to look. Um, so kind of homogenized, we want them, we want our society to be kind of broadly represented. And so these AI models are really a Xerox copy. They're, they're a photocopy of the past. That's the second problem with generative AI models is that is that replication of data using this kind of kind of pattern matching is the same actually the same type of technology that's that's used for a photocopy and it's it's never perfect what what I mean by that is that the the simulation of the past is always a little you lose a tiny bit of fidelity with every copy and that's why if you take a photocopy of a of a picture and you copy it 100 times in a row like you take a copy and then you copy the copy, and then you copy the copy, and you copy the copy. If you do that like a hundred times on any ordinary photocopy machine, the photo will be unrecognizable after about anywhere of twenty-five to fifty copies. And that that actually is less discussed, but bigger problem with these generative AI models is that the um, fidelity, kind of an accuracy, can't escape the physics of of um, that that loss of loss when you're copying something because they're just they're everything that outputs from a from an ai model is a copy of the past it's not new wow i read that bloomberg article and it's pretty intense i'm just curious though since this caught your attention why it matters that we're projecting the past on the future is it because you know, children will use this as a tool and learn that higher paying jobs are typically held by lighter skinned people and lower paying jobs are typically held by darker skinned people. What are the issues that you see here? Because I love this con- this question of what are the dangers of AI? Because I think it's just good to be aware of them. There's so many, it would be impossible to even cover them. You know, it's, I'm not anti-AI. I, I just think it's really important to understand that, I mean, because it's, it's a technology, you know, you can use it for lots of purposes. You know, you can use electricity to power an e-bike in Africa, or you can use electricity to power an electric chair in Oklahoma. I mean, it's, you know, same technology. So I don't think that, you know, the technology itself is problematic, but we just have to be circumspect about, and I think everyone in that industry certainly would agree with this, you know, we have to be circumspect about the past, and using past data to define the future. Because, you know, I don't believe that you can, you can make change happen if you use the data from the past to create the future. I mean, it's kind of doesn't right. seem like that connects. So, yeah, whatever these models are trained on, massive troves of data, like as soon as we learn that something that we thought was true isn't true, then all of a sudden that mm. data isn't true anymore. How does the model know? 
right. that it isn't true anymore or is kind of true or maybe not be true, you know, or things are changing. Yeah. Like the, the, you know, I don't think an AM model, it knows anything about change over time. Right. I don't, I don't think it really, there's no concept of, of trends. It could give you snapshots if you asked it to tell me what people think about racial relations in 1960, tell me what they thought about it in 1980 and so on. It could do that, but it doesn't really have any sense of the change itself. There is no notion of the change. It doesn't have any mental model of that in itself, the way a human right. being kind of can sit back and be like, feel that change happening and know that the change is its own thing. It's not just the data snapshots. What a way to wrap up season three and what a, a concept to leave our audience with as food for thoughts. Yeah. I think what I, yeah, what I try to think about as a leader is how AI will play a role at this kind of new generation of AI in my work because the, the older generations obviously have played a role in tech enabled businesses, but how to use it also as a tool or to think about the trends that it's producing and how to maybe change the rules of the game that I'm playing, which is VC to help adjust for some of these patterns that are stereotypes or biases, create a new future. But your point is right. You know, will AI pick up on that? I don't know. Well, what I would say just in closing, is that for a, a, a business that has a lot of knowledge workers in it, marketing, software, maybe, you know, reports, analytics, you know, any, any of that stuff, I would probably be modeling out, you know, 10 or 20% lower costs across the board. And I would be looking at, you know, lower costs for getting a business off the ground, less capital required to get to the same revenue goals. Like I do think that there's a productivity boost that's going to be somewhere around 10 to 20%. For businesses. And so I would just put a marker on that. That's kind of what I'm doing. And I'm saying like, well, if I was growing this business scoot and I was going to expect to have, you know, X amount of people next year doing these jobs, I'm going to have fewer of them doing that, doing that job and maybe some more doing a different job. But that's the simplest way to think about it is just, there's got to be productivity gains and force your businesses to tell you how they're going to use these incredible tools to increase the productivity of their operations. So last question, more of a rapid fire style, Ed, are you using chat GPT and what are you using it for? So I use it a little bit and I use Bard on Google too. I kind of play with both of them. I've used stable diffusion. I've used um, some of the image generators. Yeah, I use them. But my work doesn't really require it too much. I'm not, I don't do a lot of content creation and the content creation I do is like a business plan for Scoot, you know, who AI couldn't possibly know what to do with that other right. than to make it look pretty. But the substance, like how many, you know, how much are we going to invest? How, you know, how big are we going to be next year? Like I'm, I'm, I'm not counting on it for that. So I, I don't use it too much right. to be honest, but our people do. Our designer uses it constantly. Um, our marketing people use it and the coders are using it more and more. And that's kind of why I think about it more macro, just like, I just expect my business to be more productive. How about you? Yeah, I've used it and mostly for things that I need to just write quickly. So whether it's 
you know, synthesize these four points into interview questions. And I did that for my interview with Fuman for the founder summer school. And then I always edit everything or, you know, write a, write a letter for this particular contract that I, you know, this is more personal, just kind of like this contract that I want to uh, end or kind of a termination letter for some sort of service provider contract. That makes things a little bit easier because it just, you just can copy paste. So I've been finding it really useful around that. Um, but I love the idea of surveying our portfolio companies. So we will certainly be doing that after this episode. It's an action item I've taken down. And Ed, as always, this deep dive conversation to close out the season has been insightful. And I've learned a lot from you. And it's been fun to interview the leaders that we did this season and bring to light their stories. So thank you for being the co-host of the show. Super fun. That's a wrap on season three. Sounds great. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.